Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 4, and we're in the, I guess you might call the beginning stages of one of our more extended mini-series in our Millennium Series. We're dealing with the Old Testament witnesses to a coming millennium. And just, to, I'll say this every once in a while, you might ask the question, why are we taking so much time on this? Well, there's two answers to that. The first answer is that the Bible takes this much time on it, so I feel pretty safe there. The second answer is that really, for generations now, the idea of premillennialism, that Christ will return, then set up his kingdom, has really been shot down by theologians as just kind of a new idea or something that um, I, I think the, the, the biggest deception, if you want to call it that, is that the only teaching on the millennium is found in Revelation 20, and then that gets explained away. And at some point, you sort of just get to the point of saying, all right, let's just make a statement, and let's show what the Bible says. And so what we're doing for a number of months is what you might call biblical theology. Biblical theology is when you walk through Scripture and take texts as they come and take topics as they come. And then we're going to turn around and do systematic theology where we arrange those topics um, in, in clumps that make sense. And there's so much in Isaiah that we're going to spend a bit of time on this. Now, we'll naturally intersect with Israel along the way because Israel is all over the Old Testament, obviously, and highly important in the coming millennium, but I'm actually saving an extended treatment of Israel for a future uh, s- a couple of series. What we're focusing on right now for a dozen and a half messages or so is simply the, the, to, for us to demonstrate the plethora of emphases that the Old Testament gives to the coming kingdom of Christ on earth, what I'm calling the Old Testament witnesses. And we've really just gotten started with this. So far, we've seen the witnesses of the book of Genesis, Psalm 2, Psalm 72, and Psalm 89. In my opinion, the most prolific author, and we won't count Psalms, other than Psalms, the most prolific author in terms of the millennium is the prophet Isaiah. In fact, after tonight, we're going to spend the next five messages in Isaiah in crucial, what you might call hallmark millennial chapters, chapters 2, 9, 11, 24, and 65. But for tonight, I just want to introduce Isaiah to you, and then we'll do a high-altitude look at passages other than chapters 2, 9, 11, 24, and 65. I don't have a tightly knit outline for you tonight. We're simply going to do kind of a sightseeing trip through some of the most important portions of Isaiah's prophecy. And I just want to show you that Isaiah is pointing us very clearly toward a millennium. And at the end of our time tonight, I'm going to prove to you that Isaiah is premillennial. And I can do it in four verses. But we'll save that for the end. But first of all, just to take a general run at this, how are we to understand Isaiah? I'm going to give you a purpose statement here for Isaiah. And we'll do it two or three times as we go through tonight. Isaiah is the chronicle of warnings. There are warnings to the northern kingdom of Israel, to the southern kingdom of Judah, and the warnings are very simple. Judgment is coming for sin, but someday God will save a remnant and he'll bring a perfect king to give salvation first and to reign over them on the earth second. I'll just 
tell you all that again. Isaiah is the chronicle of warnings to the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, warning them of their sin, but that after judgment comes, someday God will save a remnant. He'll bring a perfect king, first to save them from their sin, and second to rule over them on the earth. Isaiah is the story of the Holy One of Israel. This is a term Isaiah coins. He uses it 25 times. The Holy One of Israel will purge His people of unholiness. He'll make a nation that's fit to participate in His reign on the earth. Chapter 1 begins immediately with an indictment against Judah. Alas, sinful nation, people heavy with iniquity in verse 4. Verse 5 directly states that they're in rebellion. The land has been filled with idols in chapter 2. God will now remove his protection in chapter 5. He will allow a foreign enemy to decimate Judah and Jerusalem. That's chapter 6. So that he can keep his covenant promise to curse their disobedience. The first 17 chapters of Isaiah are primarily detailing indictments against Judah. They're lists of specific ways she's rebelled against God. Chapters 18 through 31 Give chance after chance after chance to repent. The basic message is this. As a nation, turn from sin, or as a nation, you'll be judged for your sin. Over and over again, the the warning is given. Judgment is coming, judgment is coming, judgment is coming. In chapter 5, the story of God tending His vineyard that produces bad grapes. It, It illustrates His love for Judah, for Israel, and He will allow it to become vulnerable, to become unprotected, to become overgrown, to become worthless. And this is so that he would exalt himself in judgment and in righteousness. If the prophecy ended fairly soon in the book, maybe at the end of chapter 5, it would seem hopeless. But laced throughout all of this book is God's clear intention to restore Israel, to save them once again. His love for His people never diminishes. He fully intends to keep His covenant to them, both to punish their wickedness and to establish them as a nation forever after they've been purged of sin. And so toward this end, Isaiah, as we walk through this, just peppered with multiple references to the salvation of God. He promises to recover them in chapter 11, verse 11. He'll turn his anger away. He'll comfort them. Chapter 12, verse 1. He'll send a savior and a champion. Chapter 19, verse 20. Israel will be rewarded for their long wait for God's salvation. Chapter 25, verse 9. And to those in exile, God would give what would become Isaiah 40 through 57 for their comfort, for their hope. And in these chapters, we see that this hope is not just for the few, the 50,000 or so that return from exile in Babylon. This looks far beyond that because in those chapters, we see the coming servant. We see the redeemer of Israel who will pay for their sins once and for all with his very own life. All of Isaiah is based on one premise. And that is God made a promise to Abraham In Genesis chapter 12, and God intends to keep that promise, and that is to form a nation that will go on forever. The Holy One of Israel purging Israel of sin so that the holy remnant can dwell with Him forever. And, and graciously, God has grafted in the Gentile as well. That we receive the blessing given to Abraham and his people as his spiritual children. No, the church is not the new Israel The church is the wonderful addition and complement to Israel, all of us enjoying the grace of God. 
And so just to do this little exercise, I'm purposefully going to avoid what we might call the big five. Chapter 2, chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 24, chapter 65. Those are so millennial that I don't know how you can get through it without being premillennial. But we'll do those over the next few weeks. I'm going to skip those chapters. We're not even going to touch them. But what I'd like to do is just a light exposition of a few other key passages and just show you how the coming promise of a king reigning on this earth is just woven all throughout Isaiah. We'll start in Isaiah chapter 4. We'll, we'll be reading a bit tonight. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, which is basically the whole chapter. In that day, the branch of Yahweh will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the honor of those of Israel who escape. It will be that he who remains in Zion and is left in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is written down for life in Jerusalem... When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and rinsed away the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then Yahweh will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her convocation a cloud by day, even smoke and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all, the glory will be a canopy and there will be a booth to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and a hiding place from the storm and the rain." Well, this is a description of future Jerusalem. Just a a few quick features here. Verse 2, the branch of Yahweh will be beautiful and glorious. This branch is the same branch from Isaiah 11, verse 1. It is the visible branch, Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 23, 5, Isaiah 53, 2 also speak of the same branch. Why is this called a branch? We we think of a branch as kind of a, a, a dead stick. But the branch comes out of the seemingly dead root of the line of Davidic kings. Significantly, by the way, the branch is also associated with the future building of the temple of God. Zechariah 6.12, Then you will say to him, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold a man whose name is Branch, and he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of Yahweh. That's never happened yet. See also Ezekiel 40-48. through He's called the fruit of the earth in verse 2. This may refer to the prosperity of Israel. I think it's easier to understand this as a metaphorical parallel to the branch. The branch is the fruit of the earth. That the pride and honor of Israel is now a human king. The fruit of the earth. Jesus Christ. Verse 3 shows that in this day Jerusalem will be filled with the redeemed. I love this phrase, everyone who is written down for life in Jerusalem. That is, by the way, the doctrine of election right there. In verse 4, the people of God have been cleansed, they've been purified, they've been made ready for this kingdom. And now we get a hearkening back to the days of Moses, the visible glory of God. In verse 5, you have the the pillar of of cloud, the, the flaming fire. You have this idea of going back to the good old days. What a joy that will be. This is describing a Jerusalem with the presence of the branch and other supernatural occurrences that we've never seen. Turn to Isaiah 19, verse 16. Isaiah 19, verse 16. And as I said, we're just going to walk through a number of texts together. This section outlines the future of the historic enemies of Israel. And the context is important. This section has five times this phrase, in that day. This section from verses 16 
through the end of chapter 19, it describes features on earth that have never happened in history. They cannot happen in the final sinless state. Therefore, they must happen in an in-between kingdom. In that day, what does that refer to? It refers to the end of the Great Tribulation, the beginning of the millennium, that period of time. The first, in that day, verse 16. In that day, the Egyptians will become like women and they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving of the hand of Yahweh of hosts, which he is going to wave over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the counsel of Yahweh of hosts, which he is counseling against them. This is a transitional time from judgment to restoration. This is right at the very beginning of the millennium. There's a nation of Egypt left But now they tremble before the Lord, incidentally, for the first time in history. The second in that day, verse 18. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to Yahweh of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. This is a bit of a difficult verse. The city of destruction is more likely the city of the sun. If it's the city of the sun, that would be Heliopolis in Egypt. This is the version that was found in the Dead Sea Scroll writings of Isaiah. And so you have five cities in Egypt. Whether they're representative of all of Egypt or speaking of major cities, doesn't make any difference. But now, two things to be noted about them. They speak the language of Canaan. What is that? That's Hebrew. Second, they swear allegiance to God, to Messiah, who is now on the earth. So anyone who says that the millennium is happening today, then go to Egypt and speak Hebrew and see what they do. It's not happening. Here's a third in that day. Verse 19. In that day, there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to Yahweh near its border. And it will become a sign and a witness to Yahweh of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to Yahweh because of oppressors and he will send them a savior and a champion and he will deliver them. Thus Yahweh will make himself known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering. They will make a vow to Yahweh and pay it. And Yahweh will smite Egypt, smiting but healing. So they will return to Yahweh and he will be moved by their entreaty and will heal them. Verse 19, Egypt clearly worshiping the one true living God. Verse 20, instead of being Egypt's judge as he has been in the past, God will be the protector of this nation. Verse 21, again, Egypt will participate in the worship of the living God. Now, it's somewhat of a mystery what the sacrifice and offering is. Probably the best way to understand this is simply to look to Ezekiel 40 through 48, in which we see sacrifices being brought back. And that's a whole other topic, which we'll get into a a number of months from now. But they're worshiping God. And, And you know this here, it even says, He makes himself known to Egypt, verse 21. Verse 22 is an interesting phrase. Yahweh will smite Egypt, smiting but healing. What does that speak of? That's what a father does. He smites his son and then he comforts him. It means God is treating Egypt as his people. Here's the fourth in that day, verse 23. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. The ancient enemies are pictured as standing at opposite ends of a highway from Egypt to Assyria with Israel right in the middle. 
Instead of the road to war, which has been all throughout Israel's history, now it's a road to worship, to the common worship of the true and living God. Can you imagine that? A peaceful highway through the entire heart of the Middle East? I mean, that's laughable now, right? And in the final, in that day, the Lord literally gives equal place with Israel Although Israel still retains its uniqueness and centrality, verse 24, in that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom Yahweh of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Listen, our covenant theologian brothers and our amillennial brothers, they say, well, you, we can't have a new Israel because whether we some sort of second-class citizens as Gentiles, does this look like we're second-class citizens? No, Israel and Assyria and Egypt, all children of God. God isn't just going to destroy Egypt and Assyria. He's going to save some of them. By the way, where will he get some of the Assyrians? He'll get them from the ancient city of Nineveh during the time of Jonah when they repented to the one true living God. What a picture of the nations of the earth, separate and distinct in identity from Israel, yet with Israel still having a unique role. Just a little side note here, theologically speaking, in Isaiah, nations are never metaphorical. They're never symbolic. They're always actual nations. And there's no reason this shouldn't be any different here. In this case, they're the actual nations, but they they tell a representative story of all saved Gentiles. Or if I could put it this way, If God can save Assyrians and Egyptians, He can save people from every nation. Neither can you say that Israel just represents the people of God, generally speaking, because God makes this distinction between the people of God who are not Israel and the people of God who are Israel. Turn to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25. Don't peek over at 24. I'm doing the whole sermon on it. Isaiah 25, verse 9. And I'll work our way there. Verses 1 and 2 in Isaiah 25 describes a long-ago planned judgment of the earth, making cities into ruins, crushing the palaces of kings. And the result is is that formerly ruthless peoples will now honor and glorify God in verse 3. And now, beginning of verse 6, there's this picture painted of peace on the earth by the hand of God. Verses 6 through 9 seems pretty clearly a look far, far ahead to the final state because of the features which are true at the time time of the new Jerusalem and new heaven and new earth. So we go far ahead, beginning in verse 6, a lavish banquet for all peoples. Verse 7, God swallowing up the covering and the evil which is stretched over all nations. What is that? That's death. It's now gone. Verse 8 says it more directly. Death is swallowed up. No more tears of agony. No more tears of sadness on anyone's face. And on the lips of all people is this praise in verse 9. Behold, this is our God in whom we have hoped that he would save us. This is Yahweh in whom we have hoped. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And so verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 take us gloriously all the way to the final state. As shown by a very simple comparison. Revelation 21 Beginning in verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. 
and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things passed away. So that takes us all the way to the glorious final state. And you might say, aha, Isaiah teaches the final state. Well, of course it does. It also teaches the millennium. Because now in verse 10, we're taken back to the middle era, to the intermediate kingdom, a time, not the current time, but certainly not the final state. Verse 10, for the hand of Yahweh will rest on this mountain and Moab will be trodden down in his place as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. Yeah, how often have you read the words manure pile in the Bible? This is speaking of Mount Zion, Jerusalem, because there's a a comparison geographically with Moab being trampled down in Moab's place. Moab was just across the Jordan River to the east, close to Israel, and Moab was related genetically to Israel through Lot, Abraham's nephew. But throughout their history, Moab has always been a thorn in the side of Israel. She was so close. She could have allied herself. Moab at any time could have come and said, look, you're the chosen people of God. Can we tack onto this train here? She could have worshipped the God of Israel. So the geographic comparison is the Lord's favor rests in Jerusalem, but Moab just across the river has stayed stubborn. And so she'll be trampled down in her place. This obviously can't be during the final state. Why is God so incensed by the way, with the iniquity of mankind. Why is he so angry with sin? Because of the horrific, unbelievable pride of men. And and this illustrates this at an epic level. When God says to men that if you don't repent, I will crush you in the manure pile of their own sin, the dung heap in other translations, what do they do? Verse 11 And he will spread out his hands in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. This is an unbelievable picture. The sinner's been crushed like a piece of straw in a dunghill, a manure pile of his own sin. And he's trying to swim in it. He's saying, I like it in here. This is wonderful. So prideful. And ultimately he says, I don't need God's mercy. I'll get myself out. But as the one who rebels against the Lord thinks for a moment that he'll swim comfortably in the sewer of his own sin, second half of verse 11, but Yahweh will lay low his lofty pride. Together with the trickery of his hands, the unassailable fortifications of your walls, he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, even to the dust. So the earth is under the control of God and those who have rebelled will be crushed. That must be the intermediate kingdom. It's not happening now and it certainly won't be necessary in the final state. Now, chapter 26 just continues where that theme of initial judgment to the lost ends up and all of a sudden we see victory. Here we have once again in that day and we see the song of Messiah being sung. Verse 26 In chapter 26, rather, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for salvation. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. The one that keeps faithfulness, the steadfast of mind, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in Yahweh forever. For in Yah, Yahweh himself, we have an everlasting rock. 
For he has laid low those who settle on high, the exalted city. He brings it low. He brings it low to the ground. He casts it to the dust. The foot will trample it. The feet of the afflicted, the steps of the poor. Now, why is this important? This is a millennial song celebrating the open gates of Jerusalem. That God has just crushed evil in the world. It's an invitation to righteous nations to visit the steadfastness of mind of the righteous who trust the Lord, the celebration of recent judgment on rebellious nations. And Israel is pictured here as marveling that God has done this. Listen, we have trouble waiting for a month or a year for something. Imagine waiting 3,500 years. Chapter 26, verse 15 Here's what, how they marvel. You have increased the nation, O Yahweh. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. And catch this. You have extended all the borders of the land. For the first time ever, they have all the land that God deeded to them all the way back in Genesis. Look with me at Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. We get a beautiful description of the effect of God being on the earth in the flesh. Isaiah 35 has some beautiful features. The renewal of the actual land. This is not a a full reversal of the curse, but there seems to be a, a definite partial reversal. Chapter 35, verse 1, The wilderness and the desert will be delighted, and the Arabah will rejoice and flourish like the crocus. It will flourish profusely. The second half of verse 6, waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Then the scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. So you have the renewal of the actual land. You'll also have the the end of illness and disability. Verse 5, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the, the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. By the way, what did Jesus do when he was on the earth? He gave a little preview of what the millennial kingdom will be like. No disease, no illness, no disability. The renewal of the land, the end of illness and disability. How about this? The safety of travel. Verses 8 and 9, and the roadway will be there. A highway will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not pass by on it, but it will be for him who walks in that way, and ignorant fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. The renewal of the land, the end of illness and disability, the safety of travel. How about the gathering of the elect of God in Jerusalem? The gathering of the elect, verse 10, and the ransom of Yahweh will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. Turn to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, we hear the words of the coming Messiah himself. And he basically gives an outline of the redemptive plan of God, God's plan for redemption. Here's the basic outline. First of all, the call to all peoples to listen. Christ calls to all peoples. Verse 1, listen to me, O coastlands. This is a Hebrew word that means really, really far away places. Listen to me, O coastlands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He has made, he made my name to be remembered. This is a call from Messiah himself to all peoples to listen. The second part of the redemptive plan of God, the gospel goes to the Jew first. 
The gospel goes to the Jew first. Verse 5. So now says Yahweh who formed me from the womb to be his servant. To return Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am glorified in the sight of Yahweh and my God is my strength. Through the cross of Christ, the pathway to redemption is provided for a future regathering. Now, lest anyone say the church is the new Israel. Well, now God the Father speaks to God the Son and makes a distinction between Israel and the nations. So now you get to the next part. The gospel goes to the Jew first, but then the third part, the gospel to the nations. Verse 6, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return. I will also give you as a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now notice this. This is God telling the son, you know what? Getting to be the king over one glorious nation isn't enough for you. That's not enough glory. You need to be king over the whole earth. What did Paul write? Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile, to the nations. And the next part in the redemptive plan of God, the prediction of messianic world domination. The prediction of messianic world domination in verse 7, thus says Yahweh, the redeemer of Israel and its holy one, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of Yahweh who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And now you have the regathering of God's people, verses 8 through 12. People coming out from hiding, coming out from the darkness, being led with plenty of water on the highways, prepared for return. And then you have the joyful kingdom of Christ on earth. Verse 13. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains. For Yahweh has comforted his his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Now, when I originally preached through Isaiah 49 a number of years ago, that was the first in a nine-part series that I called God's plan for Israel and the nations. Because from chapters 49 all the way through 55, that's the underlying theme. Chapter 49, beginning in verse 14, all the way to the end of chapter 50, we see that the day is coming when Israel is loved not only by God, but Israel is loved by all the nations. Comforting Israel that God hasn't forgotten her, God declares in chapter 49, verse 16, Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. This is permanent love. And the nations will love Israel. Chapter 49, verse 22 Thus says Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and make high my standard to the peoples and they will bring your sons in their bosom and your daughters will be lifted up on their shoulders. Kings will be your guardians and their princesses, your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet and you will know that I am Yahweh. Those who hope in me will not be put to shame. And just how much does Messiah love his people? How much is he going to do for them? Chapter 50, verse 5. Lord Yahweh has opened my ear and I did not rebel nor did I turn back. This is Messiah speaking. And in verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not hide my face from dishonor and spitting. 
you immediately recognize this as a prophecy of the trials of Jesus Christ right before the cross. In chapter 51 through most of 52, God reminds Israel of the Abrahamic covenant. He encourages them by going back metaphorically all the way to the very founding of Israel. Chapter 51, verse 1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek Yahweh. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. And that's a metaphorical way of saying go all the way back to the beginning. Verse 2. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who brought you forth through labor pains. When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied. And then he goes from the past all the way forward to the future. In verse 3. Indeed, Yahweh will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness. He will make like Eden and her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the sound of a melody. In verses 4 and 5, he tells them, pay attention. Justice is coming. Righteousness is coming. And he promises a future glorious, peaceful time. In verse 11, So the ransomed of Yahweh will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion and everlasting gladness will be on their heads. They will obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing will flee away. By the way, we've already read a number of verses that are very familiar to you and they're even in, in popular songs you may have grown up with. Isn't it nice to finally put those verses in their actual context? To know what they're actually talking about? God calls Israel. He says it's time to wake up spiritually. Chapter 52, verse 1. Awake, awake, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your glorious garments. O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. And how can they awaken? How can they come to spiritual life? It's through the gospel. The good news Chapter 52, verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who proclaims good news, who announces peace and proclaims good news of good things, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. By the way, Paul quotes that exact verse in Romans 10, verse 15 to speak of the gospel going to the Jews, to Israel. And what's the core message of the gospel? What's the central feature of the good news It is the death and resurrection of Christ. And Isaiah predicts that Israel will crucify her own Messiah. Chapter 53, verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we, Israel, did not esteem him. And yet through the death of Messiah, their sins could be forgiven. Verses 4 through 6. Our griefs He Himself bore, our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. This is a prediction that Israel will think that God is striking Jesus in judgment, but instead He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. The book of Isaiah is designed for an unsaved Jew to read and progress through the gospel. But Messiah would be raised from the dead. Chapter 53, verse 10. 
But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. There's his death. If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he would see his seed. He would prolong his days. That is his resurrection. And then we see in verses 11 and 12 the reward to Messiah of his resurrection, of being faithful all the way to the cross. And what will be the future result for Israel and for all peoples? Immediately we get back to kingdom language, to millennial language. Chapter 54, verse 1, Shout for joy, O barren woman who has not given birth. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For more numerous are the sons of the desolate one than the sons of the married woman, says Yahweh. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your seed will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. This is a picture of the expansion of God's kingdom over the whole earth. And now Israel will live in total security. Another classic verse, usually taken out of context, Chapter 54, verse 17, last verse of the chapter. Speaking to Israel, no weapon that is formed against you will succeed. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the inheritance of the slaves of Yahweh, and their righteousness is from me, declares Yahweh. And now, with growing anticipation of a kingdom that is on the precipice of arriving, the king himself cries out with a new covenant invitation chapter 55 ho everyone who thirsts come to the waters and you who have no money come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without cost verse 3 incline your ear and come to me listen that your soul may live and i will cut an everlasting covenant this is the new covenant with you according to the faithful loving kindnesses of david verse 6 Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to Yahweh and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Can't you just picture the Lord Jesus Christ preaching this? Why? Because he is. This is his sermon. Or as he said in Matthew's gospel, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. As he says, to the woman at the well in John 4, they, they, she can come to the living waters taken from Isaiah 55. And by the way, the Messiah gives a guarantee, a guarantee of how you can enter into His kingdom, how you can be here with Him, serving with Him when He reigns on the earth. And that guarantee is that the gospel will never fail. It can't fail. It's incapable of failing. Chapter 55, verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The gospel will not fail. And now he issues a peek into the glorious kingdom that if you'll trust that the gospel will not fail, this is what he's inviting you to. Verse 12. For you will go out with gladness and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands instead of the 
thorn bush, the cypress will come up and instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up and it will be to Yahweh for his renown for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Verse 12 is beautiful. You know what this is? This is like you're coming into the gates of the millennial kingdom for the first time. And he says, this is what you're going to see. You'll, be, you'll go out with gladness. You'll be led forth with peace. And it'll be as if the mountains and the hills are literally shouting for joy. The creation set free from its curse, as Paul teaches in Romans 8.21, the prince of peace reigning in peace. Oh, if only we could skip there, Right? But first, mankind must be divided. They must be categorized into those who will follow Messiah to the kingdom and those who refuse. In Isaiah 56, 1 through 8, God gives an extended invitation to the Gentiles of the world to join him. Verse 6 of chapter 56, Also the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to him and to love the name of Yahweh, to be his slaves, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and takes hold of my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them glad in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer. What's that last phrase? For all the peoples. The rest of chapter 56 and all of chapter 57 makes this division between those who seek God and those who refuse to seek God. The end of chapter 57 gives a summary. Chapter 57, verse 19. Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says Yahweh, and I will heal him. But the wicked, here's the contrast, are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuge and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Now, if by now in Isaiah, you don't see that Isaiah is premillennial, that Messiah will return and set up a glorious kingdom, at this point, my opinion is that you probably just don't want to see that. Because now, you're all becoming experts on Isaiah's theology of the future, and I'm going to prove it to you. Turn to Isaiah 60, verse 1. Isaiah 60, verse 1. And as I read Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 4, these are now all familiar elements of this coming kingdom. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and dense gloom the peoples, but Yahweh will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried on the nurse's hip. The light of God shining upon Israel. A time of terrible trouble right before the appearing of God on earth. A time when the nations of the world come to the light of Israel and the gathering of Israel helped by others. Now if we took time to go through Isaiah 60, we would see the now familiar theme of the glory of Jerusalem. The Jews of Jerusalem being honored and cherished by the descendants of their enemies. This is a beautiful phrase here. Verse 14 of chapter 60. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you. And all those who spurned you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. And they will call you the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And the whole chapter, chapter 60, just revels in the might and the wealth and the power and the prestige and the glory of Jerusalem. When has that ever happened? 
Never. Maybe for a few decades during Solomon's reign. That's never happened since. Now remember the whole purpose of Isaiah. It's a chronicle of the warnings to the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, that judgment is coming for their sin, but someday God will save a remnant. He'll bring a perfect king to give salvation first and reign over them on the earth second. Well, now the tension begins to build toward this time and we see the the putting together of the idea of salvation and kingdom, salvation and kingdom. Isaiah 61, verse 1. Now we're going to see in compact form both the first coming of the Messiah for salvation and the second coming to reign on the earth. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me. Because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. If, if Israel had accepted Christ's offer to be their king, there would have been no gap in verse 2, between to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, insert gap, and the day of vengeance of our God. You recall in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus took the scroll of Isaiah and he read from chapter 61 right to verse 2 to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh. And he stopped. What happened in Nazareth where he read that text? He was rejected and they tried to throw him off a cliff. And so he stops. The offer to Israel is going bad for that period of time. And now in chapter 61, after the return of Christ, mourning and sadness in Jerusalem is finished. Verse 3, the rebuilding of the nation commences in verse 4. Nations will be servants to Israel, verses 5 and 6. And then you get to chapter 62. And this reads like a, a husband who wants to show off his beautiful bride to the world. Chapter 62 This is God showing off His people. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. And you will be called by a new name which the mouth of Yahweh will designate. You will also be a crown of glory in the hand of Yahweh and a turban of royalty in the hand of your God. It will no longer be said to you, forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said, desolate. But you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For Yahweh takes pleasure in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. If we ended right there, Isaiah would have a glorious ending, but Israel isn't saved yet. Israel isn't regenerate yet. So now Isaiah the prophet speaks as if he is unregenerate, unsaved Israel, begging for the mercy of God. Isaiah 63, verse 15. He's speaking as if he is unregenerate Israel. 63 verse 15, look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation 
Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The tumults within you and your compassion are restrained toward me. For you are our father, although Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. You, O Yahweh, are our father. Our redeemer from everlasting is your name. Why, O Yahweh, do you cause us to stray from your ways and stiffen our heart from fearing you? Return for the sake of your slaves, the tribes of your inheritance. Your holy people possessed your sanctuary for a little while. Our adversaries have trodden it down. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who were not called by your name. And what is the prayer? What is the cry? What is the request that unsaved Israel is to pray through the lips of Isaiah? They're to pray for the return of Christ. And look at the prayer in Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, split the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. Isaiah tells us that Israel, prophetically speaking, will forsake self-righteousness. They will come to Messiah now by faith alone. Chapter 64, verse 6, again familiar to you. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. In other words, this is Israel saying all of our good works We're nothing. They're worthless. We must come to salvation. And so they pray for salvation prophetically. Verse 8, But now, O Yahweh, you are our father. We are the clay and you our potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Yahweh, nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your people. What is that? That's a prayer of repentance. That's a prayer acknowledging that God is sovereign over salvation. We're the clay. He's the potter. And now God responds with the answer to the prayer for salvation. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says Yahweh, heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares Yahweh. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. He just said, you come by faith in humility, I will receive you. That's the answer to the prayer for salvation. And take a wild guess how Isaiah ends. Isaiah 66, beginning in verse 10, commands To be glad for Jerusalem because God is coming to execute his judgment on all who reject him and all the nations will bring tribute to the king in Jerusalem. But in the final verses, Isaiah takes us beyond the millennial kingdom and he goes all the way to the final state. Isaiah 66, 22, for just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares Yahweh, so your seed and your name will endure and it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to worship me, says Yahweh. And they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. And they will be an object of contempt to all mankind. Wow, Isaiah ends with a reference to hell. If you want to be in this final state, if you want to be in the millennial kingdom, you must avoid hell. And how do you do that? You come to the one that Isaiah calls the Holy One of Israel. But I skipped my favorite premillennial passage in Isaiah. 
It speaks not only to the millennium, but I'm going to show you what Isaiah's theology is. So to close our time tonight, turn back to Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26. We were very close to it. We edged up near it. Isaiah 26, 19. The end of chapter 26 makes the case that all of God's people can rest easily because we'll be rescued and protected from the wrath of God which is going to fall on the earth during the great tribulation. The bad news for the rebels of the earth is that God is coming. And we'll start in verse 21. For behold, Yahweh is about to come out from his place to visit the iniquity of the inhabitants of the earth and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover those of hers who were killed. God's coming, punishing wrath on the earth will be so comprehensive. The end of verse 21 says that that the, the people will quit burying their dead. There's too many of them. There won't be time. There won't be enough places. We're talking about from the book of Revelation, billions of dead people all over the place. The earth will be filled with piles of bodies. The sight of the decomposing dead will be normal. Verse 20, chapter 27, rather, verse 1, Satan will be defeated. In that day, Yahweh will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Revelation 20, verse 2, identifies the one who is the serpent and the dragon. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. When God comes to judge the earth, verse 21 says that the earth will reveal her bloodshed. How much blood? The book of Revelation is one of the bloodiest books in the Bible as it records the, this coming judgment of God on the earth, the return of Christ. Revelation 8, hail and fire mixed with blood raining on the earth. Revelation 8, a third of the oceans turned to blood. Revelation 11, some of the rivers and fresh water sources turned to blood. Revelation 14, the battle of Armageddon, blood spattered for over 200 miles up and down Israel. So much blood that it's said to be like a wine press pumping blood out into the land. Revelation 16, the entire ocean turned to blood. Revelation 16, all the rivers and freshwater sources turned to blood. And Jesus Christ himself in preparation to return is pictured in Revelation 19 as wearing a robe dipped in the blood that he's about to spill of his enemies. But right here in Isaiah 26, in the same vicinity, we see great hope. Verse 19, your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. What is this? This is the resurrection of God's people. All who have placed genuine faith in Christ, the Holy One of Israel, that Isaiah speaks of, so frequently. So you have in verse 21, the wrath of God poured out on the earth in the great tribulation and in verse 19, the resurrection of the saved. What happens in between? Verse 20, come my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation passes by. The resurrected saints, verse 19, And now all of God's people 
are removed for a time from the theater of operation, the entire earth. What a picture of protection and safety. Come, my people. This is an invitation to God to come to where He is. Enter into your rooms. This is a Hebrew phrase that means your innermost private protected rooms. Jesus said it this way in John 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whether... What a precious phrase, close your doors behind you. If you know your Bible even a little, this evokes a memory of another time God protected his people from wrath by putting them behind closed doors. Genesis 7 records Noah and his family entering the ark and the Lord shut him in. And everyone else on earth died while the redeemed ones literally floated above the destruction. And... And if you're a Jew reading this in Isaiah's day, another picture of the safety of a shut door would come to your mind. While in captivity in Egypt, the night before their escape, all of Israel closed themselves behind their doors at God's instruction. And behind these closed doors in their homes, they celebrated the very first Passover with the blood of a lamb smeared on their doorposts. And while they were safely behind closed doors... Exodus 12, 29 records God striking down all the firstborn of Egypt. And the end of verse 20 here, hide for a little while until indignation passes by. So, what do you have here? Verse 19, the resurrection of the saved dead. Verse 20, the entering of all God's people, dead and alive, into the chambers prepared by God for them to protect them from the wrath of God on the earth. And verse 21, the wrath of God falling on the earth in the terrible day of the Lord. Where else in Scripture do we see that order? The resurrection of the saved dead, the taking away of all God's people into the presence of the Lord, and the wrath of God poured out on the earth in the terrible day of the Lord. How about 1 Thessalonians? Chapter 4, verse 16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Here's number one. And the dead in Christ will rise first. The next verse, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Come, my people, enter into your rooms. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night while they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman who is pregnant and they will never escape. And why will we be spared this wrath? Why is Isaiah pre-tribulational, pre-millennial? 1 Thessalonians 5.9, God has not appointed us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now in the established kingdom, Isaiah 27 reiterates the peace and safety of this new kingdom on earth. Isaiah 27 verse 12, and it will be in that day that Yahweh will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the river to the brook of Egypt. And you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel, And it will be in that day that a great trumpet will be blown and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were banished in the land of Egypt will come and worship Yahweh in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. 
For the record, I didn't use a single passage from Isaiah 2, 9, 11, 24, or 65. And those are the big ones. I could list for you this week yet more heartbreaking and tragic news in the world. You've all read it. You've read of the eight-month-old baby in the UK who has a, a, a terrible disease and the government won't let the hospital treat her. The Italian government has offered citizenship and free treatment and the government of the UK has said she's not worth it and they're going to unplug her when she could live. That's one of a thousand examples we can read every day. The only solution to a world that's gone mad with sin and iniquity is a kingdom ruled by a perfect, holy, righteous king. John the Apostle is one of my ministry heroes, and I'll tell you why. He had the privilege of living kind of in two worlds. He lived in the sinful world which persecuted him obviously for his faith in Christ and he lived at least momentarily at least for a few moments through the revealing of the contents of the book of Revelation he lived through the future coming of Christ to execute judgment and justice and to rule in righteousness now we have no choice we have to live in this world but one of the reasons I just want to keep looking at the millennium together over and over and over again is so that we'll live more and more in the world that's, the, that's to come. In fact, as I pray for each of you, my prayer has been more and more that your heart and mind are more heavenly than they are earthly. That they're more millennial than they are in this monstrosity of sin that we live in. And so I hope that you can see through Isaiah that God fairly shouts, the king is coming, wait on him. I hope that encourages you as it has me. Our Father, we thank you for the overwhelming just bulldozer of information that you have given us, that the King is coming, the King is coming, the King is coming. Israel will be glorified, the nations will be saved, peace is coming to the earth, prosperity is coming, the wicked will be vanquished, judged. Christ will reign here in person. The church will be completed. Israel will be restored. Each one of us right now, tomorrow morning, have to face the consequences of a sinful world. And so we ask you, Lord, to take this monumental hope of a coming kingdom, encourage our hearts to look up, for Christ may come at any moment. And we would join the Apostle John in praying, Come, Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.